Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 6th of September 2021 and this is episode 221. On today's podcast, I talk to author and historian Christina Holstein about her research into the battles of Verdun during the Great War. This is one of two podcasts. In this programme, we will be examining the battles of 1916. Christina spoke to me over the interweb from her home in Kent. Hi Christina, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself, how you became interested in the Great War and in particular Verdun? Well, I suppose it's one of those things that's just a series of coincidences really. I was always interested in military history. I have been since um, my earliest memories. I'm not from a military family, so I don't know where it comes from. And I was living abroad. I was living in Luxembourg at the time. I lived there for 30 years and Luxembourg was 60 miles from Verdun. So wanting to to know more about war in general, uh, I thought, well, you know, the Western Front's only down the road there. I'll go and have a look at that, see what there is. And the thing about Verdun is there is an enormous amount of physical remains still there. So you can actually see things that I I always wanted to see when I was a child. You know, you go and see a castle and you think, well, it's just ruins. You know, I want to know what it looked like. If you go to Verdun, you can see what things look. The forts are there, the field work, the trench systems are still there. You know, machine gun posts, bunkers, and that's what's really fascinating to me. You can actually, you're not just walking ground that has been returned to the plough, and you, you know where things happened, but you can't see it, and you have to imagine it. Here you don't, uh, you can actually go and stand there and look at the places where things happened and think, goodness me, this, this, and, and it must have looked, I can't say it looked like this, but these remains, these physical remains, are still here, a hundred years, more than a hundred years after battle. And it just it was just fascinating place it was only 60 miles down the road from me I had small children at the time I couldn't go away overnight or for long periods but I could go uh, for a day and in fact used to take the family with me they all liked it and uh, we could walk in the forest on the marked paths and see what was there made a good family day out sounds strange to many people I suppose but that's how it was and it the more it's like everything the more you know the more interesting it becomes and so you keep on going back I got to know local people local groups doing research on the ground and it just grows from there. In this programme we're going to talk about the battles around Verdun in 19 Could you start by giving our listeners an idea of where Verdun is on the Western Front and a brief background on the town and its important French culture history? Well if you take the Western Front as a whole it's roughly halfway along. It's uh, I suppose the easiest thing to the easiest thing to pin it to if you like is Reims where the Champagne comes from. It's 90 kilometres east of Reims. Um, it's on the River Meuse. It in a political part of France called the Department of the Meuse, and historically it's in Lorraine. It's northeastern France, about 250 miles from Calais. Verdun was part of the Holy Roman Empire for uh, about 800 years, so it wasn't actually part of France. It became part of France in under Louis XIV in the 17th century, and obviously has remained France ever since. It was fortified in um, the 17th century by Vauban, Louis XIV's military engineer, but it was 
wasn't a frontier fort. The frontier was uh, 100 kilometers or 100 miles or so to the east. So it was a second rank. So although it was important in Verdun, in fact, because it's a crossing point on a river where uh, a river which flows southeast, northwest, crosses some very ancient east-west road, and therefore there has been some sort of fortification there from very ancient times that was already there before the Romans. It was it was not of first militaries until the after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. And what happened then was that under the Treaty of Frankfurt, which ended the Germans annexed Alsace and a part of Lorraine, and that brought the, the border between France and Germany, who of course had been enemies for hundreds of years, to within 25 kilometers. Of, and between the Bordun, you had uh, a, a, a marshy plain and then a range of hills. So suddenly Verdun became of immense military importance. And for the next uh, 25 years or so, it was part of this great fort building uh, program that went on along the new eastern border of France to defend it against uh, the, the growing might of Germany. And it was by 1914, after Paris, I would say the most important fortress in France. When I say fortress, it's not just a building. It's You've got the citadel in the middle of the town, but on the hills surrounding the town, because the town is in a bowl, you, there were forts at different distances all the way around the town, fieldworks in between, a whole communications system, underground ammunition depots, everything else they could need. So it's this great block that stands astride the road from Germany into France and that blocks transport up and down the river as well. So militarily, in 1914, it is of immense importance. February 1916, the Germans launched Operation Gerrit. Now, excuse my German pronunciation. Now, this is an attack in the Verdun area. What was the purpose there? It's an attack. It, it's a plan drawn up by the German chief of the general staff, who's a man named Eric von Falkheim. And it's always thought of as extremely difficult to understand. In fact, I don't think it is difficult. What he's trying to do is, is bring the war to an end. And he, he in launching Operation because he launches tackled Operation, which has a strategic aim. That is the strategic aim. The aim is to force France out of the war by bringing it to the point of military and political collapse through the infliction of a high number of casualties in a very short time. And the reason why he chose that plan is that nothing else has worked so far. You have to bear in mind that General Falkenheim, as chief of the general staff, is responsible for the war on two fronts, the eastern front and the front. And if you take both those fronts, Germany is numerically inferior. Germany can't just leave Russia to the Austro-Hungarians because they need support. So Germany has to keep some troops there. And of course, the bulk of the troops are on the Western Front. Now, the British army is growing, and Falkenhayn knows that by about the middle of 19, obviously the British army is going to be much bigger than it is at the end of 1915, and then Germany will be even more numerically inferior. So if he's going to bring the war to an end, he has a very short window in which to do it. And the reason why he chooses to do it this way is because basically there isn't another way, if haven't enough. But if you, if he, if what he did at Verdun was he chose a part of the salient which had been and had been weakened by having the resources, human and material resources, stripped in 1950 to support other fronts. So Verdun, which by 1916 is in the middle of a salient, it's a salient which is divided by a river which makes it difficult to get troops from one side to another. It's weakly defended. It has very poor supply lines coming in, and the city is about eight miles from the nearest part of the German. France cannot afford in 1916 to lose another city. It's lost 
loads. And it's also lost enormous numbers of men. There have been battles in Champagne, which is not in the autumn of 1915, in which in three weeks France lost 148,000 men. And there had been acts of indiscipline, men refusing to go forward, men shot as shot as a, an example. And the, the military intelligence Falkenhayn's getting was saying to him that there, there were problems politically on the home front in the army with people saying this has gone on too far, too long, it's costing too much, how much longer can we do this? And so if you like, the gamble is to choose a place on the Western Front that knows to be weak. And France is, Germany is very strong, particularly in that part of the West, because 50 kilometers to the north, so 30, 38 miles to the north, you've got the Brie Iron Basin, where you've got the arsenals, the steelworks, the iron, the iron mines, everything's working at full tilt. Hundreds and hundreds of railways. He can supply an artillery battle at that point better than he can supply it anywhere else on the West Front. And on paper, there is nowhere to a French to visit. They're too weak, their supply lines are too poor, they've hardly any guns in the salient, the ammunition supply is low, and with supply lines like that, how are you ever fed? So if you like the gamble, and I'm going to call it that, is that by attacking with an overwhelming weight of artillery to crush the opposition before you send the infantry in, and then using three army corps of, of infantry against a salient which is defended by two infantry divisions, most of whom are reservists in some of the territorial, that you will be able to crush them and reach a point, because it's very hilly, reach a point on the high ground where you get your guns for and dominate the river and the supply lines coming into Dun and threaten the city. And as I say, the gamble, I'm going to call it that again, is that that will, because you've inflicted so many social that the French government will say, we can't go on like that. When you're looking at casualty levels, I think the sort of thing he's wanting to inflict is what they managed to inflict in a salient in the first week of the fighting in Russia in 19, which was 210,000 men in a week. Well, if you've lost 148,000 in three weeks in September and had troubles and indiscipline, and you lose another huge number, you will, then that's that's the calculation. It's a political calculation to make to, to achieve a strategic aim, to force the French to the position where the government says, that's it, we can't we can't go on, we can't justify this, peace, anything is better than this, have to sue for terms. And at that point, then he believes he can, Russia and France are allied, so he can then make peace overtures to Russia, and he can then gather up his forces to deal with Britain, because Britain is the real enemy, he doesn't think Britain will ever surrender. Can you tell us how the initial attack and campaign went up to the summer of 1916, in particular what the Germans did, what they managed to achieve, and how did the French react? Well, it all went very well at first, at least it does apparently when you when you read it. Um, there was an overwhelming artillery bombardment. The Germans brought up over uh, over a thousand uh, artillery pieces, right up to the very heaviest ones they had, another 250 trench mortars, and then, of course, all the machine guns and everything else. Three army corps of men operating on an eight-mile front, so it's an absolutely crushing weight of artillery. And the French, in the first four days resist much better than the Germans expect. And the, the, for, for most of the German units, they that the objective they are supposed to get to in the end of the first day, they have to get to on the third day. So the, the French actually, for all that they are on paper extremely weak, actually get themselves together and resist much better than the Germans expecting. And of course, the Germans are shelling forests. So if you, you shell forest and then you send your 
men takes them a long get through. So the, the advance is not as fast as is planned, but nevertheless, in the first five days, it goes fairly well, and the Germans managed to capture one of the forts, Fort Duermont, which is, uh, was captured in rather extraordinary circumstances, basically the Germans walked in. Fort Duermont was the biggest fort around Verdun and on the highest point, so it's the most important of all, so it's a huge morale. But at that point, five days into the battle, the, there's a hiatus. The, the Germans are tiring, they need reserves to come in, the weather changes, and the the French command changes, and the a new uh, second arm, French second army comes in under General Pétain, and he says, first of all, nobody takes step back, and secondly, all go fire on the right bank. The attack is only on one side of the, the right bank, which is the eastern side of the river Meuse. So all the guns, both sides, right bank, firing on the Germans on the right bank. And at that point, German advance on the right bank slows down. So that's 21st of February where it starts, 25th February where it starts to slow down. The Germans then extend the back flank. Um, the, their, their, I've got to think where they were. Um, <laughs> their right flank is the other side of the river, the western side of the river. They extend the battle to a limited operation on the western side of the river. Uh, that's going to take a few days. Again, another limited operation only taking a few days. And in fact, uh, it bogs down there. And the objectives were set for the first, uh, for the early days of March, are only achieved at the end. Similarly, on the Germans' other flank, um, there is a, there's a, a line of four that have to be uh, have to be reached and cleared and dealt with. The first one to be that they have to deal with is a little fort called Vaux, Fort Vaux, V-A-U-X. Uh, and the the fighting to get to Fort Vaux starts on the 26th of February. They actually get fought on the 7th of June. So although it goes, it apparently goes very well in the first few days. It bogs down very. When you get into June, the uh, the Germans are well aware that the Allies are about to launch their offensive. Uh, men and resources are already uh, on standby to go to the Somme or have gone. They launch a last major offensive on the 3rd of June on the right bank and it fails. It gets, it achieves, I suppose, one of the objectives supposed to achieve, but not the others. There's another attempt on the 11th of June to push the line a bit further forward and that fails, I'm sorry, on the 11th of July. And that fails on the 12th of July. The uh, the commander of the 5th Army, the German 5th Army, which is doing the fighting in Padan, orders them onto the defensive. So the first half of the battle, that's 21st of February to the 11th of July, is an offensive battle for the Germans and defensive for the French. And the second half, which starts then, the defensive for the French and defensive for the Germans. How do the French react and how do they deal with their logistical problems that you uh, mentioned earlier? Well, the, the logistics of the Battle of Verdun are quite extraordinary, really. The Germans had on their side, as I say, hundreds of railway lines and then all these, uh, the iron and steel arsons and ever, all the mills and everything that were working at Full Tilt. The French had, uh, before 1914, coming into the salient, two standard gauge railway lines and then uh, a narrow gauge railway line and, and some roads. Roads at the time, of course, being narrow and not always surf. One of the standard gauge railways was knocked out in September 14 by the formation of a, another German salient. And the other one was uh, could be uh, was under German gun and was not 
love. So in 1915, what they had is a road, a narrow road, and they have a light railway. Now, that's fine when nothing's happened. But the Germans are counting on the fact that with supply lines like that, you cannot possibly bring up more men and guns and ammunition, anything you need to meet a huge artillery assault they're planning to do. The, in the, the, there was a plan on paper to improve the road and the logistics into Verdun in 1915, and indeed to build a new railway line. It hadn't, they hadn't been in variance. And in the last few days before the German attack, the French drew up a new plan to, uh, to, to use the road and the railway to take off all the civilian traffic and simply to run convoys of, of, of truck up the road and, uh, and convoys of trains on the light railway. They brought in rolling stock from all over France. Uh, they had, the second army had trucks, then there were army reserves that had trucks, and they just ran them as 24 convoys in the line. There was no civilian allowed on the road. It was extremely well organized and, and well disciplined. They also started building another railway, but then that wasn't running until uh, the end of June. The German plan relied on knocking out the remaining standard gate railway and the French not being able to get their logistics organized. And they got them organized and it, it, it started running so well that within 24 hours of the battle, they had truck whole division of infantry into Verdun. And one week into the battle, the French actually had the same number of men on the right bank as the Germans had. Now, if you think the Germans attacked with three army corps of infantry against two divisions, and by the end of the first week, the, the French had brought up the same number of men as the Germans had, it's the most extraordinary achievement. Now, the battles of Verdun uh, go on from July right the way through to December 1916. Could you tell us about the second half of the campaign? and how the French counterattacked and how did the Germans respond in in response bad word how did the how did the Germans react to the French counterattack well they went on fighting throughout the summer the French could have sat back and said right well you know we've they've gone on the defensive we don't need to do much and they didn't they went on fighting throughout the summer every German tie that done is one less for the Somme so every German gun that keeps firing at the done is one less for the Somme so they keep on fighting throughout the summer this is something that overlooked. And they managed to push the Germans back or hold them. And at the same time, they start planning for a major counteroffensive in October, which is intended to take back some of the ground they lost, but in but particularly the two forts they'd lost, Fort Dourmont and Fort Vaux. And this was launched in um, October, on October the 24th, and was very largely successful. They didn't manage to take back Fort Vaux. The Germans abandoned it finally a week later, but they did manage to to, uh, to retake Fort Dumont, and of course uh, it was a great a great boost to morale, tremendous blow to Germany because uh, they had fought all summer to keep and, and to push obviously push the French back, but also to retain the fort. And um, the for for the for German commander, this uh, a terrible blow to lose fort. And once you've lost it, because it's the highest point in the area, once you've lost it, there isn't really much to stop you just being pushed back further. I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. How the Germans responded to the French attack? 
Um, the way they responded at that time was was basically to say, should we try and recapture the fort? And the answer to that was was no, uh, no, you can't. So you've got to dig in where you are. And it looked as if they would have time to do that and get organized before the following spring, because everybody knows that nobody attacks in the middle of winter. But the French then launched second on the uh, 16th of December, which was not Ixodbans. And that was the Germans was a complete calamity. The French took 11,000 on, on that occasion. They'd taken 3,000 when they recaptured the 11,000 on the 6th of December. And that was an immense to the German high command, as you can imagine, which had already had shocks anyway, because the commander in the, the um, chief of the general staff, General Falkenhayn, had already been at the end of August 19. The commander of the German 5th Army, which was doing the fighting at Verdun, who had been the crown prince of, of Germany, Prince William, Crown Prince William, he had been played, the chief of staff had. So the 5th Army, the men of the 5th Army had already seen all that happen. That's, and then suddenly they had this. Now the new chief of the general staff that came in after General Falkenhayn was Field Marshal von Hindenburg, and he took action straight away. The, the commander of the 5th Army was dismissed. The two of the divisional generals that, that failed to resist French were dismissed. And there was shock that went right through the German 5th Army done. And then, of course, you've got question, well, what do we do? Do we attack again? Uh, or do we put up with this and stay where we are? And in the end, after a great deal of discussion, it was decided that Verdun had to become a second front. So having started on the 21st of August as this short, sharp event, which was shock on all, was going to about and then in January 1917, they're saying, no, nope, we just have to sit where we are, hold what we've got, and meet French counter-offensives with tackle withdrawals, but, but we can't do any more. It has to be a second front. So how did the French react uh, to the German attack in 1916, and why didn't they collapse as the Germans uh, thought they might? Well, that's a very good question. Why didn't they collapse? Our morale, I think. I mean, I think the German, the plan, in my view, General Falkenhayn, when when he develops this plan, is looking back to something that happened in Russia in 1950. In the first week of May 1950, the Germans attacked in the Gorlitz Tarnow Center, which was in, in very similar condition to the Verdun's. It was weakly held. It had a river going through it. It had poor supply lines coming into it. They attacked again with overwhelming artillery, and in a week, they achieved all their objectives and inflicted massive casual Russians, 210,000 I'm sure that's what he had when he was uh, planning the dump. I think what he what he perhaps didn't spend much time thinking was the fact that the Germans didn't just sue for terms happened, and he's expecting the French government to land. Now, the, I think if you're thinking of the psychology of France was a, was attacked in August 1914, they've lost an enormous number of men. Why are they suddenly going to collapse now? I think that the French were at the point where they're absolutely not going to collapse. They would have given up the dump they had. There was a plan to evacuate it was absolutely necessary, but they weren't going to. They they, they weren't just going to give up. They they want they were not going to be defeated a second time. So I think it's partly that it's determination. It's also the fact that I think that the supply lines worked a great deal better than, than anybody would have supposed they would. And that's that's thanks to I think uh, French determination, ingenuity, hard work. They just got these supply lines up and running and they kept them running and they didn't allow anything to stand in the way. And I think I think if you think of it, that that the French morale is is, is boosted by the fact that this is seed. German morale is undermined the fact that what they're doing is, is not. And so to meet resist is you, in, you already inflict a blow by, in, by just by resist. When
when you're not expected to. I mean, if you read about the Gorlitz Tarnow sale, there are lots of accounts of Germans saying, well, the only Russians we saw were either dead or wounded and they were running away, which isn't fair. There's plenty of Union in the Gorlitz Tarnow sale. fought very well. But if that's the mind, then when you meet resist, that is already a blow. And I think, I think just, it, it, it's determined organisation and it's morale and it's an absolute not to let the Germans. Brings us on to the question, who actually did win? Did the French uh, not lose or did the Germans not win? Oh, heck, yes. I, I think without any doubt that the French won. I mean, people do argue that the Germans won. I really don't see it. Um, you could say the French didn't lose if they had stayed at the lines of July 1916. They could have left it there and said, right, fine, you know, we're not going to keep on putting the effort into it. But they didn't. They went on fighting. They were determined to push the Germans back and get the lines away from from the dust. So there's no danger to the city. And they were going to get their forts back. So I, I would say, without a doubt, the French won. And I think the blow to German morale is enormous. I mean, 1916, when you take the Dun and the Somme, the, the blow to morale is absolutely enormous, quite apart from the loss of men. But no, I, I think without any doubt, French won. And that leads me into my next question, which was, what was the loss of men in terms of dead, wounded and missing? Well, the overall figure, uh, figure for the Germans is 335,000 and for the French is 378 killed, wounded and missing. So that's actually, if you think that's 10 months to the Western Front, that's actually very low. It's, I mean, you will know the Somme better than I do. I think it's, it's um, the Somme's twice as bloody in half the time, at least. So uh, although Verdun has a reputation, and it's not surprising because it's the first of the great artillery. And so the, 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 the pictures of the world and the accounts describing the, the, the lunar lands and fighter crates, you know, the dead and all the rest, that, that people assume on the basis of that that casualties were, were absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I heard people say to me, oh, there were a million dead at Verdun, weren't there? Well, no, there weren't. Um, I mean, this is, I'm not saying this is nothing, this is 700,000. So altogether, overall casualties. The, in the French casualty list, the known dead at Verdun is 61,000, which is over 10 months is actually very small. But on, you've got to add on to that 100, 101,000 misses. So, I mean, they're probably, but in, those are the, that, that's the casualties. 335,000 Germans, 307,000. And my final question is, where can people learn more about the Bear Dun and in particular about what you've written about the conflict? Well, my books are all with pen and sword in the Battleground Europe series and they're, they, they're, they're specific in that I write about the two forts and I write about the left bank, which is the western side of the river. And then I write, uh, there, I have two books of uh, walking tours on the ground. If you want an, uh, if you want an overall introduction to the subject, I think the, the best book still is uh, is Alistair Horne's The Price Law. Um, I think, I mean, there are people who say, oh, well, you know, it's old-fashioned and that. It was produced in the early 60s, that's true. Um, but the thing about Horne is, first of all, he writes very well. And secondly, he lived in France and he had the absolute advantage of walking the battlefield with veterans on both sides and seeing the battlefield as it was in the next dynasties and uh, also walking with the old priest at Joshua. So he has a feeling for it, an understanding of it, that I, I think is absolute. Once you've got the, the, the chronology, then if, I mean, if you don't want to read a, a, a full size uh, introduction to it, you could read one of, I mean, if you could read uh, Malcolm Brown's example, it follows Horn very close, but he's uh, probably half the size. Once you've got the chronology of the battle in, then there are other things you could read. Uh, there was a book uh, written by um, Paul Jankowski a few years ago about Verdun, which has a lot of interesting stuff in it, uh, very well 
researched book. Um, but I think I would not recommend it to somebody who hasn't read a basic history and actually has the chronology of it in their heads. Um, it's there isn't there isn't that much written about the Dun really. I mean, I would say I I would stick with Horn. If you haven't read anything, stick with Alistair Horn. Uh, and then of course there's, there are all my books available in the Battleground Europe series for pen and sword. Christina, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.